Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm here with my co-founder on Agenda Media and Women's Agenda, Tyler Lambert. Hello, Tyler. Hi, how's it going? Good, good. So on the agenda this week, we have the female athletes making history in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect, how AstraZeneca overshadows women's health, and Tala has an interview with Senator Christina Keneally regarding her new private members bill to get the private sector to provide paid leave for parents who experience stillbirth. That is coming up. Thank you for listening. Well, hello, Tala. How are you? Hi, Ange. I'm very well, actually. Well, look, I'm a little bit, I, I have a little bit of a, a um, husk going on with the voice region. So I'm sorry for listeners um, who already have to endure my nasal twang. Uh, it's going to be worse this week. <laughs> yes. Well, I have a few issues of my own going on downstairs. So who knows? What <laughs> you will hear of various little people and their father telling them to do certain things right now. <laughs> <laughs> So let's start with a win. What is your win this week? My win, it's a bit of a, it's probably a little bit left of field, but my win is is Simone Biles, um, who of course is American gymnast. She is touted as being the greatest in history. And she has been through so much over the last few years. And and so much so that she earlier in the week uh pulled out of the Olympics um, and she cited that she was having, you know, a very severe mental health issues and, and really felt that she was not, you know, in a position to, to keep competing and, and she needed to protect herself. She's a survivor of sexual abuse and she was one of the many young women who suffered at the hands of convicted sex offender uh, USA doctor Larry Nasser. Um, so when I say that she's been through a lot in recent years, um, she really, really has. Um, and, you know, I think the fact that she could come out and be, you know, so strong and um, vocal about what her needs were uh, and the fact that she needed to step back and and, and and as I said, protect, you know, what was going on with her and her own well-being was just incredibly courageous. Uh, unfortunately, some commentators, uh, ones that we are very familiar with, I wish that we, that wasn't so, but, you know, the likes of Piers Morgan came out and, and said that she was using it as an excuse and what a joke and um, she should just admit that she did badly. And, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, we don't expect anything else from that nitwit, but God, he's just so repugnant. Um, but look, I just, I found her, the way that she navigated that, you know, her courage in coming forward and, and she really didn't want to le- let her teammates down either. I think it kind of got to that point where she realized that she wasn't performing at her best and she, she needed to take a step be- back in order to allow her, her teammates to thrive. And, um, and that's exactly what they did do. Um, I think they took out the silver in the end. So yes, look, congratulations to Simone Biles. And I, I hope she's doing well at this, at this time and, and that she can kind of take that, um, you know, all the space that she needs to recover. Yeah. I love that she's put um, mental health on the agenda. I love that she's kind of said that, you know what, I'm going to put my, my, my health uh, first here. And it's sort of demonstrated to all of us and 
um, offered us a reminder of the permission that we have to do that as well. And like, uh, like Pierce Morgan, like what an absolute. He's such a douchebag. And like, and he's not even American. That's what I like. What does he care? He's intentionally come out and taken this issue. He knows that when he makes those tweets about her, that he is going to stoke plenty of uh, people coming back at him and plenty of upset. But he's, it's so intentional to come out and do that. And that standard typical commentator that goes out there and intentionally aims to hurt people and aims to drive at uh, issues that really, really are, are difficult things for so many people. And they do that intentionally just to get retweets, just to get ratings, just to get whatever. You know, I put him up there with people, commentators who are vaccinated themselves and then go out there with an anti-vax uh, message and, you know, freedom to <laughs> people. There's just it's so repugnant and so disgusting to see. Yeah, but the issue with yeah, the issue with Piers Morgan is that he is constantly, constantly trying to stay relevant. Like it's pathetic. As I said, we expect this kind of bullshit from dudes like Piers Morgan, and um, as you cited from Alan Jones in the anti-vax debate and various other shock jocks. Um, who really just get a buzz out of being a dickhead. Um, but, yeah, in the case of Piers Morgan, just please, we've had yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah. um, just to carry that, I, I don't know if Alan Jones is vaccinated or not. I was kind of talking more in the context of certain, um, some of the bigger sort of US uh, commentators, particularly across mm. Fox News and things like that. Some have changed their tune on it. Um, I, I'm not sure about Alan Jones. He's definitely had his opinions and opinions that have led to him, his column being cancelled from the Daily Telegraph. And I have to say, I'm not usually somebody who sells what, says well done to the Daily Telegraph, but well <laughs> done to the Daily Telegraph for taking that stand and just saying, yeah, no, I'm not going to do you that. You know, if you're cancelled from the Daily Telegraph, though, like you are doing something pretty hectic. <laughs> so on the Olympics, I mean, I guess my win is uh, much the Olympics as well. I think that it's provided a lot of joy for a lot of Australians right now, particularly that um, the team is doing so well. And, you know, the women on the team are doing so well. Women have taken out the majority of the medals so far or at 10 medals so far. I'm pretty sure that 10, seven of those have gone to women. So it's great uh, for the millions of Australians who are in lockdown right now to be able to watch that. And the Matildas two nights ago. Oh, my God. Absolutely phenomenal. And you got, you and Madeline were, were sending text messages uh, late at night uh, commenting on that, and it was so exciting. So can't wait to see what comes next so from them. Good. And just, you know, I'm not a huge sports fan, but I'm just so grateful to have this, this two weeks of, of joy to be able to experience this uh, while we are in lockdown at the moment. So oh, that is is wonderful yeah. um, but my win I'll go for something a little bit different and it came from Jack River who is uh, not only an awesome songwriter and musician artist but um, she has just issued this plea to the big networks and particularly to the Olympics coverage but also to major supermarkets to various corporates who might be hosting events whatever it is uh, to actually play Australian music right now and she's put it out on social media. It's like a grassroots campaign and it's gotten attention. It's gotten a response from, from uh, some of the, the, the hosts of the Channel 7 Olympics saying they're going to see what they can do to bring more Australian music in. I actually can't believe that they're not playing Australian music on the Olympics coverage. I think that's quite pathetic. So Channel 7, smarten up, get there. But also uh, she's gotten a response from Coles who are also going to do a lot more now there. 
But I just think it is a no-brainer. These musicians have been through so much. We spoke about the arts in the last episode as well and that idea that the return to live music is, is really much probably the, the last kind of thing that we'll get to. It really is yeah, artists, musicians. Uh, this is a sector that is at the, the, the bottom when it comes to any kind of uh, return to normalcy, like the idea of being able to go to big festivals and things like that. We are still a long way off that, or at yeah. least still a long way off knowing that those festivals will, will 100% go ahead. You know, they might get organised, but there's there's so many risks around these rolling lockdowns. So we need to yeah. do so much more to support this industry. And I think it is a no-brainer to see these networks and supermarkets, everyone, to uh, play that music. Totally. I'm all for it. So on to our next topic. I want to talk a little bit about the vaccine and AstraZeneca particularly and a lot of the mixed messaging around AstraZeneca. I think we're all very familiar with this um, regarding what age groups can have it, regarding the uh, risks associated with it, the very, very rare risks associated with it. And uh, also, you know, obviously the calls in Sydney now for those in Greater Sydney who are under the age of 40 to, um, you know, go and get AstraZeneca if, if you, you can't get Pfizer, but that we need to kind of get this done now. I might put this in the context of um, the Grattan Institute's report talking about this race for 80, that we really need to get 80% of the population vaccinated in order to kind of return to a level of normal where we can end lockdowns, where we can, um, we can know that our hospital system can cope with what happens next. The federal government road roadmap is now a little bit different. It is calling for for seventy percent of the eligible population vaccinated. So, you know, we're kind of at a point now where there are plans, but um, mm. and, and there is a Pfizer supply allegedly coming, mm. but there's yeah. more than enough AstraZeneca there. So, Tala, you wrote about this this week, and I think it's really interesting in. Uh, when we put it in the perspective of wider women's health, how we think yeah. about these risks associated with AstraZeneca compared to the risks that women take on kind of totally. every day. Um, yeah. So I am getting my first AstraZeneca jab tomorrow. I'm 31 and I am aware of the risks. I understand that there is a slightly heightened risk of me um, developing blood clots from the AstraZeneca jab compared to the Pfizer jab. In saying that, there are still kind of um, ongoing studies about Pfizer and, and side effects of Pfizer too. So, it, you know, you've got to take these things with a little bit of a grain of salt. The risk of me developing a blood clot with AstraZeneca is roughly kind of one in 250,000 where, and that, you know, that that's, that's something to consider. But I was really surprised because I, I went to the doctor on Friday. I had to get a, a con consult with the doctor prior to um, organising my vaccination on Monday. And I thought it would be a really seamless process. I thought I'd walk in there. He would be like, you know, that's totally fine. You've said you want AstraZeneca. Here is the risk. But, you know, if you're okay with it, let's get it sorted. That was not his approach at all. His his advice was very vehement in that I should wait for Pfizer, that the risks were too high for me to consider getting AstraZeneca, that I really, you know, should know what what I what was at stake. And um, and I was just really surprised by that because I think, 
you know, the messaging now, and I don't blame him either. He's a health professional. He's taking, you know, directions from health, various health bodies. I do blame the government because I do think that the messaging here has been so off for so long and now people don't know where to go. And I just, I was, it really bothered me because as a 31-year-old woman and, and living in a place like the Northern Rivers where we know that vaccination rates are actually already quite low, Um, And people do have, there's mass reluctance in an area like mine um, for people to get a vaccination. Um, If I'm wandering into my GP and getting that kind of advice, most people are going to go, okay, that's fine. I'll either wait until I get Pfizer or I'm just not going to bother with this vaccination at all. That's my fear. Um, Obviously, as a journalist and having written on this and knowing the stats around it, I was able to counter his argument and I said to him, you know, when I was 17 years old, I wandered into a GP and they prescribed me, you know, they, they referred me onto the contraception pill straight away. And I was actually on a contraceptive pill that was even higher risk of blood clots. So in context, the contraceptive pill is about a one in 1,000 chance of developing a blood clot. And the contraceptive pill I was on was on about one in 500. And at the time, my doctor was very adamant, you know, that's such a negligible risk you know, if you don't have, if you don't, if you're not already kind of predisposed to blood clots, you're, you're likely fine. And that was it. And it was never an issue getting that referred to me. So if that's deemed a negligible risk, one in 1000 or one in 500, how, how is the messaging around AstraZeneca, which is one in 250,000, so, you know, there, there is just mass media panic around it. There's, and, and, you know, that's a flow-on effect to, to society. And it's understandable because if we are being told that, if that message is being repeated to us time and time again, it is understandable why people feel like that. But I just, I really hope that people do a little bit of digging, do a little bit of research on their own and take ownership over this decision um, because, we do. We, we're at a point where there's only 17% of this country that are vaccinated and we need people to really take the initiative to get that done. And, and um, you know, in places like the UK, the AZ vaccine is seen as like, you know, this absolute showstopper, life-changing, um, amazing vaccination. And in Australia, it's, it's sad that the message is just not that. Um, so yes anyway that is my experience sorry that was quite a long kind of tirade Um, but I feel really strongly about this and I am very excited to get my first vaccination tomorrow and you know hopefully be on a track out of this whole nightmare because I think Australia is just up the shitter at the moment and we need to get into a better place. Yeah, yeah well um and I have this fear now that maybe we'll see Sydney kind of uh accelerate its vaccination rate sorry that's not a fear that would be a wonderful thing but then um at a two-speed process with the rest of the nation and then what that would mean um for for everyone really and um I mean when when you say that that kind of vaccination rate of those adults who are fully vaccinated I think we also need to remember that most of us haven't actually had the opportunity to get vaccinated um before the last few weeks so there are reasons why that hasn't happened and I certainly know um a lot of uh people uh, um, um, our age, uh, you're a little bit younger than me, but who are now really doing everything possible to get vaccinated. It's, um, and that's people in Sydney really moving forward and making this happen. I want to say this um, in Florida. So in the US right now, they're talking about 
COVID being a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And it is so tragic to see because these are preventable deaths. And, and so in Florida, they've had their highest one-day total since the start of the pandemic, 21,683 new cases of COVID-19. Um, the vast, vast majority of those um, among the unvaccinated. And as Tali, you spoke about recently when we, we hear those stories of, of doctors kind of holding the hands of patients just before they're about to be ventilated and those patients say, I just, can I have the vaccine? And the doctor says, it, it's too late. Like this is, yeah. this is our chance. And I, I, think, I think there's a real appetite in Sydney to, to get vaccinated. And I hope that appetite extends to the rest of the country because please don't wait for, for Delta to come. It's, uh, and don't, you know, I, I'm going for my second shot tomorrow and I expect to be kind of waiting for hours on end. And part of me thinks like in another part of the country, you'll probably go in and have a, a swift vaccine and, and that's easy. Yeah. But, so yeah, go and, go, and, go and do that if you can. Yeah, I think just on, on women's health in general, part of that piece that I, I looked at was just, there are so many issues that affect women so significantly that we do not put any time and energy into or very minimal time and energy into mm. you know if we look at something like I noted the contraceptive pill which is just kind of very regularly doled out to to whoever wants it um yeah. and and also something like domestic violence um where you know the rates are skyrocketing particularly at this time and now energy is just so focused on something like AstraZeneca. I think it's harmful. All right. Well, Tala, we should now go to your interview that you've done with Senator Christina Keneally. So we will cross to that now. Stillbirth is the death of a baby before or during birth, born at 20 or more weeks of gestation. It's a trauma that sadly too many Australian parents experience, with six babies a day tragically lost this way. Despite it being a higher death rate than our national road toll, there's often an expectation on parents to just move on with minimal support. Their silent tragedy best left unspoken and underacknowledged. 21 years ago, Labor Senator Christina Keneally's own baby Caroline was stillborn, with the leader opening up publicly on several occasions about the enormous toll this placed on her and her family. Since that time, Keneally has fought tirelessly to remedy Australia's policies to better support parents going through indescribable grief. Next month, she will introduce a private bill in a bid to alleviate some of the financial pressure on these parents and start a more open conversation about the loss of a child. How are you going? How's everything been in <laughs> lockdown? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, who needs lockdown? <laughs> Nobody probably, but it, uh, it's what we need to do apparently right now. So, so Christina, I want to talk to you about a private bill that you'll be introducing to Senate um, in August. Can you tell me a little bit about the Fair Work Amendment you're proposing and why it's so important to you? Well, I'll be putting a bill into the Senate uh, very soon uh, to ensure that parents uh, who work in the private sector, and that's an important part of this, who work in the private sector, um, have access to paid parental leave if their baby is stillborn. Now, why did I say it's important to mention the private sector? Well, the, the Commonwealth provided parental leave scheme, the public scheme, are already recognises parents of stillborn babies as parents and gives them the, the equal entitlement to paid parental leave. But what we know that in the private sector, that's not always the case. It's, it can be very hit and miss. 
Um, many companies don't explicitly acknowledge parents of stillborn babies as parents in their uh, paid parental leave schemes. And so you often get to this circumstance where a mid-level manager is just making a decision. Uh, and you can get different outcomes for different people at different companies. You can have different outcomes at different companies. Uh, and it's such a fundamentally important decision because parents of stillborn babies are parents and they have to not only, as mothers, recover physically from giving birth, but they have to recover from the tra- the shock, the trauma and the grief. And they have parenting responsibilities. They're things like autopsies and funerals and and, and, and so there are just things that uh, mean that it would be so much better if they had clear, unambiguous access to paid parental leave. Mm, yeah. The Senate Select Committee on, on Stillbirth Research and Education um, heard evidence from families on this issue, uh, with one mother noting she was forced to return to work after just 11 days Um is this kind of story common? Why are employers so blind to this issue? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, it is uh, common. Uh, in it's common in that uh, until very recently, almost uh, no private sector employers would have explicitly acknowledged stillbirth in their paid parental leave schemes, and the Senate Select Committee into Stillbirth did hear stories. Uh, mothers or fathers who'd been forced to go back to work too early uh, and for financial reasons. That is, they would lose their job otherwise. They were out of their 10 days of sick leave. And if you think about the idea that a a woman who'd just given birth, Mm. so she's got all the physical trauma from birth, Mm. on top of that, the, the psychological trauma and grief of giving birth to a stillborn baby. And she told us in that committee about how she spent most of the time at work not doing her job because she was in such extraordinary grief, plus her colleagues didn't actually know how to deal with her. And, you know, what it really came, became clear, and, and, and in the Senate Select Committee, and this is backed up by my own um, discussions with, um, with the private sector, is that this isn't a case of, you know, wanting to be mean or wanting to save money on the part of companies. It's actually just a misunderstanding of what stillbirth is. It's a misunderstanding often by, um, uh, you know, managers, often by a company itself who's never, and, and I put that down to the fact that we have treated stillbirth as a private tragedy. We haven't treated it as a public health problem. We haven't treated it as an economic challenge to our country. Mm. But yet there are six stillborn babies every day in Australia. Mm. So 2,000, some 2,200 people a year um, are the mothers of stillborn babies, uh, you know, the parents of stillborn babies um, who don't who don't have uh, access to paid parental leave, and so you end up in this circumstance where something that we have always viewed as a private situation is not well understood uh, by the broader public, and and that's what the Senate Select Committee sought to um, understand and change. It's what so many of the hun- you know, hundreds of parents who made submissions sought to change because until we start to treat this as the public health problem, as the the, the economy-wide challenge that it is, we won't start to see change that saves babies' lives. Yeah. 
So do you feel like this kind of policy will actually help to reframe the way that we talk about pregnancy loss and stillbirth in this country? Yeah, I I really do because um, we really haven't been talking about pregnancy and and infant loss. I I remember when my daughter Caroline was stillborn uh, 22 years ago, you know, I, I, she was my, uh, second child. Uh, I went through that pregnancy and the first pregnancy and, and I thought, how has nobody at any point actually discussed with me the idea that this could happen? You know, I, I felt like, you know, here I am, I am a first world educated woman. Uh, I have already given birth to one baby and how is it possible that I, you know, and I felt stupid. I felt grief. I felt responsible. Um, you know, and it's only really in the subsequent years that I've come to appreciate how common stillbirth is. You know, it is the, it is the leading cause. Um, sorry. It is a, it is a, it, it, it is the cause of more deaths than the national road toll in Australia. Um, one in 135 babies in Australia is stillborn. It is a higher rate than the sudden infant death syndrome. And so, you know, you sit there and you think, why aren't we talking about this? And I, you've got to say, I think a big reason we don't talk about it is because it is so incredibly sad. It is so incredibly tragic. And the courage that so many of the parents who gave evidence to the stillbirth committee showed was a courage borne by their determination and their generosity that other families wouldn't have to go through what they did. Yeah, yeah. And that same generosity from you as well, I might add. Mm, um, thank you. After losing Caroline, um, Christina, and you you have spoken publicly about that time for you quite a lot, um, was there an expectation, social or otherwise, for you to return to work quickly and, and just get back to normal? <laughs> Well, for me, I was actually, um, I was studying at the time. I was doing my, my graduate work and I had um, my son, my oldest son at home. He was only uh, about a year and a half old. I'd wanted to have my children close together in age. And um, <clears throat> so I have to say that I felt, I felt um, one, that there was, um, a, from my husband, uh, there was, while there was great, sympathy and you know I remember one of the kindest notes we got afterwards was a note from one of the partners in his company uh, and it was just very generous and kind and thoughtful but at the same time there was no real structural leave for him in place so you know he had to grapple with being the breadwinner you know we had to pay the bills uh, he had to go to work and yeah, and I was also deprived of him during the day, you know, at a point at which I could barely get out of bed in the morning, you know, he was getting into his suit and going off to work and I was struggling to even get showered. And yet here we had this, you know, 18 month old um, demanding, <laughs> understandably, that his mother got up and looked after him. And um it was just incredibly challenging during that time. And, and I, it would have been great if he could have taken, you know, a few weeks off work. I think it would have been great for him and I think it would have been great for me. Um, yeah, and, you know, I have to say I never got back into my graduate work after that. I never returned to my thesis. And, you know, that is a very common story after stillbirth unfortunately and we heard stories in the senate committee in this regard too that 
for so many people, it is such a life-altering event that they are they are unable, uh, particularly for those people who just can't get uh, the, the right support at the right time, whether it be counseling or what have you, mm-hmm. they're unable to go back into the workforce. It becomes yeah. so daunting, so overwhelming. Uh, and without the time to grieve and heal, they actually end up dropping out of the workforce altogether. Um, PricewaterhouseCooper did a, a, a survey, or sorry, a, a study on the economic impact of stillbirth, and it pointed to often for parents of stillborn babies, you know, there are higher rates of family set breakdown. They, there's um, absenteeism from work, leave, leaving the workforce, um, often losing family and or not family friends. Um, you know, there there are just you know multiple ways in which it can compound and and layers of grief and trauma and again that is why having access to some paid leave um, just is one of those most important things that helps people recover physically and psychologically yeah absolutely and I think it's also an acknowledgement of that grief Mm. uh, and and what that that family has gone through Mm. Um, you noted you know there's the statistics and they're pretty grave statistics around stillbirth um, six babies a day are born, stillborn, um, and 22% of stillbirths remain unexplained. Um, so aside from this policy, what do we need to be doing? What does the government need to be doing to ensure we lower that rate? Well, I mean, the good news is that coming out of the Senate Select Committee, we now have a national stillbirth action plan. And that is the first time we have ever had anything like that in Australia. And um, Sitting right in the middle of that is something called the Safer Baby Bundle, which is now being rolled out in every state and territory. Uh, It's all about educating clinicians and parents uh, before birth uh, about ways to prevent stillbirth uh, and the risks for stillbirth. Yeah, And I have said for a long time, there's things we know about stillbirth that would help save babies' lives, but we're simply not telling parents Mm -hmm. in pregnancy about them. And so... Where that rolled out first in Victoria, we are actually starting to see a decline in stillbirth. And, and, you know, stillbirth rates haven't changed in Australia since my daughter was born 22 years ago. And that's about as how long we've even been keeping records. So I think that's very promising. But one of the things um, that has yet to be done arising out of that national action plan was to investigate. Um, every stillbirth and you made the the correct observation that 22% of stillborn babies deaths remain unexplained Um, here's two other startling statistics only 40% of babies um, in Australia who are stillborn receive any kind of post-mortem examination whatsoever and of and of those only sorry and of of all stillborn babies only 20% get an autopsy Mm. So we're really only autopsying a very small number of the, the total cohort of, of, of babies who are stillborn. And, and that means we are just not investigating. We are not finding out what happened. Now, yes, is it possible you have an autopsy and you still don't have an answer? Yes, that, that can happen. But it's not as if we are doing a thorough investigation of every stillbirth. We are barely hitting um we're not even hitting 50 percent just to do a post-mortem examination of any type and so those countries where they have really driven down the rate of stillbirth places like the netherlands where they've had a 60 percent reduction in stillbirth it's because they decided to investigate every baby's death 
Mm. and to feed the findings of that back into the um, health system and to make sure that the parents were aware of those risks and were aware of the causes. And, you know, that's what we need to do in Australia. We need a national will and determination that we are going to investigate the death of stillborn babies so we know how to save um, the lives uh, of children in the future. What do you think the reluctance there is? Is it a is it a matter of cost or? Well, there's two factors. Cost is part of it, uh, and that's because um, autopsies are funded by state governments, and often uh, a stillbirth autopsy is kind of the the last priority. Um, some states don't even fund them, and so they only get done if there is surplus capacity in the system. Uh, you know, I was very lucky uh, 22 years ago. I had Caroline at the Royal Women's Hospital here in Sydney. Uh, I was, I discussed having an autopsy with my doctor. Uh, she took me through it, how, how, what would happen. And, you know, we made the decision to have an autopsy. And um, it was paid for by the state and we got the results. And the results were incredibly important to my third pregnancy and to, to making sure that that my third child was born safely um but that I just you know naively you know for the <laughs> assumed that 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 would be an experience that most mothers of stillborn babies would have it is not and so there's cost is part of it but the other part of it is having a doctor or a midwife or a nurse who is able to talk to parents in this time of incredible grief of incredible shock and trauma about an autopsy. It's a hard conversation to have. I'm not yeah. I'm not ignoring that. And and what we heard from the Senate Select Committee is that often you know parents were told things by their doc their doctor like, oh, you probably won't learn anything, so it's not worth putting yourself through that. Or um, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend it. It'll be very traumatic for you. And really, um, a lot of parents reflected to us that they felt that in many ways, in hindsight, it was the doctor's own grief and trauma. Um, And I understand that, you know, if you're a doctor or a a midwife or a nurse, and you've got this family and shock and trauma in front of you, the last thing, and you are yourself affected by the death of that baby, the last thing you want to do is is seem to compound it by talking to them about something that can seem on the face of it very um, difficult to think about. Mm. Um, So I do think we need to get better at supporting clinicians um, to have those conversations. Uh, And whether you're a specialist women's hospital or your local hospital maternity ward, you should have access to someone who can talk to you about that and help you make that decision and help you understand now, there are other ways, you know, if for some parents, if they can't you know, really contemplate an autopsy, you know, examining the placenta, doing other forms of postmortem examination, x-rays and other types of examination can also yield some information. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I, I just think if we, we made it a priority, uh, we would learn so much more about why babies die mm-hmm. and we would be able to get um, better information that helps us prevent those deaths in the future. Yeah, I think it's just all about choice for for families as well. Um, mm. And I can, you know, I, I've never experienced stillbirth 
and I can't imagine what kind of grief that is, but having experienced a pregnancy loss, I know that mm. truth is, is, you know, knowledge is power as well. Um, yeah. And if you have some information, many families would feel empowered by that and, and at least feel, um, you know, some, some sense of clarity moving into future pregnancies as well. Oh, and yeah, absolutely. Because I think one of the things that came out again in the Senate inquiry, and maybe you know, uh, people may not understand. List, people who are listening to this may not quite um, understand, is that you know, stillbirth isn't always just a one-off. Um, there are some families who have multiple stillbirths, uh, and I know in my case um, with my daughter, uh, I her autopsy told me what the risk factors were, told me ways I could mitigate that risk. Um, and that not only helped me make a decision to try a subsequent pregnancy and do the things that would mitigate the loss of that of my third baby, mm-hmm. um, but it also helped me make decisions about my um, um, how many children I would have. And 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 really, my husband and I took a view that we would try for one more. But the risk of having a child with the same condition was, to 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 my mind. Um, you know, quite high, unacceptably high to just, you know, to continue even mitigating for risk factors, it was still there. You know, what what happened to my daughter runs in sibling groups. And so there's no explanation really as to why, but it doesn't really matter at that stage as to why. Um, What matters is knowing that that risk is there and how, you know, and then being prepared to make decisions around it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Christina, Obviously, there have been some movements from this government on um, on the issue of pregnancy loss and, and stillbirth. And last month, the federal government introduced legislation adding miscarriage to the compassionate and bereavement mm. leave entitlement, um, which allows two days of paid leave um, provided to those who miscarry before 20 weeks. Yeah. It's a good and welcome move, but does it in your mind go far enough? You know, I haven't had a miscarriage, uh, and and I, but I've had many friends who have, and and you know, I know it's one of those things that um, is, as you say, um, for, part of it is is truth, and part of it is your your experience. Um, I welcome the move. Um, if it goes far enough, uh, I I I don't know. Um, I I think for for. I think there's some flexibility, um, particularly for um, women who may have had, you know, very difficult circumstances around that miscarriage, mm-hmm. uh, might be warranted. Um, you know, uh, the, these issues about, uh, you know, for example, um, stillbirth, uh, you know, which is in Australia defined as the death of a baby before birth, uh, uh, of a pregnancy that's at least 20 weeks gestation, or a baby that weighs a minimum of 400 grams. Now, at many levels, those are just so highly technical things when we are talking about uh, the loss of, of a baby. Um, but yet, they're, they're the definitions that we need to have some definition around some of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I have to say that what is welcome here um, is that, yes, the Commonwealth government have made some good changes. They have equal art they have allowed the bereavement payment to be um to go to parents of stillborn babies it used to be the case that your second um stillborn baby payment if you had a subsequent stillborn baby 
was lower than the first. Um, and, and you know what that was based on? That was based, again, on this misunderstanding of a whole range of things. Uh, but it was based on the fact that if you, had a, uh, if you have a, a, a baby that is born live, your second payment is lower. Um, the payment you can apply for in certain circumstances because under the theory that you can reuse things like a cot and a pram and your costs aren't as high. Well, I mean, in stillbirth, that just doesn't apply. And so, um, you know, I, I think there are things where, whether we are talking about unpaid or whether we're talking about uh, paid parental leave, whether we're talking about equalization of payments, whether we are talking about access to special leave around miscarriage, you know, all of these things, you know, we've had such a, poor understanding of how they impact on the lives of the people who experience them. And, and I'm going to say something that probably um, will sound, uh, let me just be a little bit feminist here, but let's be honest, um, you know, uh, blokes have run the world uh, for uh, a long time now. Uh, they've been in charge of designing things like laws and policies and, and procedures. Uh, and so, you know, there was this point at which during the stillbirth inquiry, I looked around and every woman who was a senator who was there that day was a every person who was there as a senator that day was a woman every witness in front of us was a woman even the hansard staff and the secretariat staff as fate would have it those that day was a woman and i just thought this is why you need women involved in public life <laughs> because it has taken this long to have an inquiry into stillbirth something that kills six babies a day yeah. And, you know, uh, so no disrespect to the men who are currently in parliament. In fact, many of them were incredibly supportive. Uh, and one of them, Jim Mullen, participated and was a great asset to the inquiry. But in you know, all honesty, decades of, of men designing the policies and the, and the laws has led us to this you know, kind of circumstance where only now today in 2021 are we talking about things like miscarriage leave or uh, paid parental leave for parents of stillborn babies. Yeah, absolutely. And just on that point, so, I mean, you, you mentioned there that there is, um, you know, strong support in Parliament now to, to have um, these issues recognised and policies worked out around them. Um, but with your private bill, um, mm-hmm. I mean, private senators' bills rarely do pass into law. Uh, that's fact. How will you continue to lobby and press on this issue? So this um, this bill reflects a, a bipartisan recommendation of the Senate Select Committee. In fact, it was the first recommendation of the Senate Select Committee that uh, the Fair Work Amendment, the Fair Work Act, be amended to give unambiguous, clear rights to parents of stillborn babies who work in the private sector to have access to paid parental leave. Uh, now, the Commonwealth government, the Morrison government, said they, they had accepted all the recommendations of that committee. Uh, but uh, last year, and somewhat inexplicably, uh, they changed the law to only allow parents access to unpaid leave, but not paid leave. And I don't really know why they did that. And I'm, um, you know, it's up to them to explain it. Um, look, but I think on this one, I don't think this needs to be a political football. I'm not trying to whack the government here. I'm actually trying to get something done. Uh, so I'm, I wrote yesterday to the um, uh, Minister for Industrial Relations, Michaelia Cash, 
to say, you know, look, I hope we can work together on this. I propose you and I sit down and figure out how we get this done. You know, if the government were to turn around tomorrow and introduce their own bill uh, to do this, uh, something their own senators have already backed and endorsed, something they've already said that they accept, um, then I'd be happy to withdraw mine and see that their bill pass. Um, what I'm, I'm really about the outcome here. Uh, the only reason I've moved it now is that that recommendation was made three years ago. And the government seems to have made their decision last year that they would only grant unpaid parental leave, not paid parental leave. So I thought, well, you know what, Let, let's put the, the marker down. Let's, let's draw the line in the sand. Let's say this is what needs to happen now. And um, I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that the government will come yeah. to the party. Well, we are incredibly grateful for your lobbying powers and um, and yeah hopefully this does come to fruition because mm -hmm. I, I do think it's absolutely needed oh well thank you very much Tyler I appreciate it uh, and uh, thank you to everyone at Women's Agenda for you know having the chance to chat thank you so much to Senator Christina Keneally for sharing that interview an emotional interview um really good we can't wait to see her speaking more about that private members bill and to see where that goes uh possibly this week thank you so much for joining me tyler hope you're feeling uh a Thanks, little bit and better with the voice uh in the coming <laughs> days you know it's not a sexy husk where i'm involved is it <laughs> and thank you for joining me again thanks Ange. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that all the stories that we have discussed you will find on our website at womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter that will hit your inbox just before lunchtime. Thank you for listening.